Father, thanks for uh, my friends this morning. Thanks for stirring uh, our hearts to to wake us up, to give us a new day, to see what it is that you have for us and how we might live this day for you. I pray, Father, you'll quicken our spirits that we would be uh, excited about being your men, that we'd be determined to be your men, that we would run hard the course that's set before us, that we might run in such a way as not to be disqualified, but rather hear those great words one day, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Continue your work in us as you have promised in your word, uh, that we might be like Jesus. We pray to that end in Christ. Amen. Come on in, fellas. Now, Lewis, I knew you've been, you know you've been here for a long time. You just out there chatting with the girls or what? Getting you guys in here on time. There's Todd. You know what? That's good. See, I'll never feel bad walking into service late on Sunday morning. And chatting with... <laughs> Oh, man, there's so much fun stuff in today's uh, opportunity, those chapters, Philippians 2 and 3. And as you know, we're just biting off uh, what we have in the chronological order of, of doing the journey. And so your assignment, the time that we asked you to spend in God's Word was in Philippians 2 and 3 this week. And there's enough material in these two chapters to uh, oh, pretty much design an entire year at seminary. This is just chock full of just tremendous stuff. And some of the highlights of these two chapters, uh, you need to make that mental note. As I have shared on numerous occasions, and as has Blake, I, uh, my desire is that you just don't check the box, that you read what you read for life change, and that you know what you've read. And so we encourage you to kind of take a little section and title it or do whatever little thing you've got to do to remember what you've read and where you read it. Uh, And so when I walk through these two chapters, I'm doing kind of the same process. And there are a number of highlights that that we'll throw up on the the board here. Obviously, I'm going to get back to that one that's up there, that working not your salvation. But some of the classic uh, issues of these two chapters... Uh, these just need to, you need to know, know these passages, man. Every one of these, I, just, I get so excited about. I start, this morning early, I started praying through the very first one that is this, this class in chapter two. It's the classic passage on humility. And it, it starts out by encouraging us to consider others as more important than ourselves. That this is the essence of what humility is all about. But it uses the greatest example of humility found in the 66 books. It is the classic uh, passage on humility because it's what Christ did, what God did. And if you look at that passage really uh, with any time at all, you realize there's some, there are just so many nuggets in there. But the first thing is, when he talks about humility, he describes himself as he left the very presence of his father to take on the form of a man and how how incredibly humbling that is. That who would ever leave this, this incredible position that we can't even fathom and take on the form of a limited man? It, it just off the chart, humble. What kind of God is this who would do it? I mean, this, this sends you in a direction that put the, you end up on your knees in awe of how much God loves us. And if that wasn't enough just to leave the very presence of his father, it says then, as a man, he humbled himself even to the point of death. 
So we see this picture of not only does God leave his throne, but he comes and takes on the form of man. Not only does he take on the form of man, but he takes on the lowest form of man, which is to be humiliated in public, being crucified naked on a cross for something he didn't do. To pay for that which we all did. Just a beautiful passage on humility. And that's where Paul builds the whole essence telling us to consider other people more important. He said, and you go, man, that's hard to think of other people more important. And you go, yes, but look at our example. Just a great passage on humility. Really, really rich. Then you get to verse 13 and he gets to this, this a classic. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That we, we're going to look at that uh, more in, in depth here in just a minute. But that's one of those that key passages that, that throws people off. It's a, it's a difficult passage in some sense because some people come cruising along and, and they've had this, this doctrine and they know it from other passages of Scripture that says we cannot lose our salvation. And then you come on that, that verse that says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We need to look at it. It has that great passage about quit complaining. I, I really wrestled. I really wanted to do this one as well in our few minutes together. See, what it means to be quit complaining, and why does he throw it in the middle of this context where he's just talked about hum, being humble and serving one another and then uses God as the example of being of true humility. And then he comes along and says, quit complaining and grumbling. Do all things. And you have to ask yourself a question. That's real easy to read, but how do you do that in a world that is very broken, i.e. our last six, seven weeks uh, on Sunday mornings? The worldview and the brokenness of this place and why everything's so screwed up. But yet God has called us out to be men who, who charge the hill without complaining and grumbling. And that that will make us different. Not being a whiner makes you different than the rest of the world and God makes it so simple and yet so clear why that's important. Because we're not grumbling, we're grumbling because the world can't make us happy and satisfied. He says the world's not supposed to make you happy and satisfied. That's a big part of your discontentment. Your home, your citizenship is in heaven. And that's where he goes with this. That, uh, and in chapter 3, this is kind of fun, my, the, the labeling of this. Uh, and and I, I don't know how I get this to you, but I wish you had this desire or this knack. I read this chapter, and it just jumped out at me where, where, all, uh, where I always remember Philippians 3 as kind of a locker room talk. It's that coach, you know, it's Paul giving that, that talk to the Philippians. And I can see him kind of pacing back and forth in the locker room. And, you know, and he's, where he starts out, he's saying, be, be aware of those that can hurt you. In other words, don't take your opponent lightly. And then he kind of gives his personal testimony. like to say, you know, I remember when I played. And here's, here's my background. And, and I'm not talking out of a void. I know what it means to go against a strong opponent. And he tells him not to quit, to press on. If you just, you want to win the game, here's the key to winning the game. You don't quit. And then before they get too overcome, he says, but don't, don't take your opponent lightly. Others have fallen and so can you. Say, so don't, don't go in there thinking this is already in the bag. This is going to be a war, man. And you need to go in there to win it. And then he tells them the key to that whole, that locker room talk. The key to winning it the Christian life is that you, you keep your focus on your citizenship. This world is not yours, man. It's heaven. You can hear him saying that. 
This is what you're supposed to be about. You're supposed to be about God's kingdom, both here on earth and the one in heaven. But I wanted to focus for a few minutes here on a trouble passage, what I call a trouble passage, because I do think it is a little confusing. And, uh, and this is one of those things that uh, it's kind of fun to talk about with other believers from time to time of, of how you wrestle through things uh, and how we get to good, solid, biblical conclusions without just chunking it out the window, without giving up on it. So when you get to verse 13 and you see this great verse, it says, uh, oh, we didn't put it up there. It says, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then verse 13 goes on and says, for it's a God... Uh, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So I say this is a, this is a difficult passage because it, at first reading and you're racing through it, it sounds like you have something to do with, with work salvation. There's something you've got to do to earn your relationship with Christ. But I say, is that really what that passage is teaching? You read that, and you've got to come up with some other questions. You, you want to know what this work out your salvation means. You want to dig in and take it apart. And what is this fear and trembling stuff? Here's some questions I think you need to answer when you come to a passage like this. First of all, I said the questions that need the answers are, first of all, what's the definition of salvation? And particularly, what it is to be my salvation? The, the passage says, work out your salvation. And so as I read that, he says, all right, he's talking to me, so it's my salvation. What is my salvation about? We use a lot of different words in Christendom, in the church. And, in, you know, we talk about eternal life, and we talk, you know, talk about being saved, and we talk about being born again. We talk about, do, are they all the same thing? Are they different nuances? Does God have different purposes? What's this my salvation stuff? I want to answer that question. And then I want to ask the question, what does it mean to work out? And... Uh, it's just a great idiom uh, in the Greek. We'll get back. We'll get to that in just a second. When I said, "What is this fear and trembling stuff?" This doesn't sound like that sweet little innocent Jesus baby lamb, eight pounds, seven ounce type stuff, does it? It's the uh, the fear and trembling. Does that go hand in hand with this warm, fuzzy personal relationship with Christ? You know, that's always pitched that He's your best friend and He's your pal. You know. This scripture is pretty clear. It says you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does it heck? What the heck does it mean for a Christian, for you and me today, to fear and tremble? I want to know what that means. I'm not going on to the next verses until I know these things. And then I ask myself the question, how do I do this? How do I work out my salvation? And the last question is that I I encouraged you last week. You need to be asking yourself, well, what happens to me if I don't do these things? What happens if I just blow this verse off? If I don't give it a second thought about working out my salvation? If I don't give a second thought about fear and trembling before a living God? Any difference? Does it make any? Who cares? Is it really a who cares? I think you'll find that it's a really he cares. So I go through a process of answering these questions for myself. This is the kind of stuff that, that, again, we go over and over so that it will become second nature to you as well. First thing I want to do is, what does exactly does this passage tell us about those questions? The first thing I would say that it tells us is that it assumes that we're already in possession of salvation. 
That's an important place to start, men. Because we're not talking about working for salvation. We're talking about working out our salvation. A salvation that is already yours. A salvation that is already in your possession. It says, your salvation. That's a key little expression. That's a possessive word, your. You've already got it, so it's not something you're earning. But you're working it out. Okay. Second thing it tells us, it declares that we're not passive in this salvific experience. In other words, this isn't fire insurance that God's talking about. You know, we've, we, you hear that, and perhaps you've used it. Perhaps it's rolled off your lips. Well, I've got my fire insurance because at some camp, at some church situation or opportunity, you trusted Christ, you put your faith in Christ, and you got your fire insurance. So it doesn't make any difference how you live your lives. You're free just to roll on down Broadway, do anything you want to with the hours and the days that it gives you. Because you are covered. Well, this verse seems to indicate that it's not, that that's not God's expectation for us. That there, there's, a, there's an involvement in you and I in your salvific, which means your salvation experience. Yes, you become a believer by putting your faith in Christ, but there is an expectation that you do something with it. He's not saving us to put notches on his belt. He doesn't need to do that. He's saving us so that he can use us as his hands and feet to tell the rest of the world about redemption, about hope. That there is a purpose behind you being saved. So this, uh, this concept of fire insurance, it's not biblical. Well, I'm saved so I can just go about my life. I, I, can't, I can't justify that with anything else in Scripture, especially this passage. Because it's very clear that we have an involvement. There is an expectation to him saving us. When he says, you work it out. Because the, the idea of work out is in what we call in the active voice. I, I mentioned a few weeks ago how important the verbs are. And you need to understand if it's a past tense verb or it's a future verb or if it's a present tense. If somebody's doing the action to you like God or if you're doing the action or if the Holy Spirit is doing the action on you, this is one of those words that says, you do the action. You work it out. That's why we know this passage is teaching us that we're supposed to be involved with our salvation experience. Not getting saved, but doing something with it. Work out. Verse 13 is very clear in this whole thing, too, because it says, that it defines this whole situation. He says, for it is God who is at work in you. It's about God. That makes sense. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That is a tremendous verse. He not only designs it, but he, there is an expectation to the fulfillment of it. You don't just say you're a good dad. You go become a good dad. You're not just, you don't just say, I love my wife. You actually love your wife. You don't just say something. That's what he says, to will it and then to do it. And God says that we will, that he wills for us to do these things for one reason. Remember what this whole passage is about, humility? For his good pleasure. That it's about God. 
The reason why men weak and continue to do that which God calls us to do is because it's not about us. You hear that expression all the time, but this is, a, this is one of those great verses that explains why it's not about us. It's about Him. And the fact that He saved us, which is where we need to go next, because we need to go, what is this saved stuff? But the fact that He brought us into a relationship with a purpose is for His pleasure. And we are serving at the King's pleasure. If you just make your own personal decision not to serve him, you are violating the very thing that God, very purpose that God even brought us into a relationship. This is the exciting stuff with why we study the scriptures. It opens the whole world to what it means to walk with God. The fact that he initiated all this and brought us into this relationship and forgave us of all of our junk and given us purpose. And he says, now, You serve at the pleasure of the king. And let me tell you, I don't know. I can't find it in Scripture if it's there. But I don't know of a higher calling and a more wonderful way to view life. It is a biblical worldview that we serve at the king's pleasure. Well, if I'm going through this process, I want to know what this workout business is. What does this verb mean? To work out. Work out your salvation. First of all, it's a foregone conclusion that the salvation is yours. The workout part is our responsibility. It is much like used in in the same expression that you would use, a deal that is completed. The transaction has been signed. The two principals then leave the room and they say, work out the details. This deal is done as far as I'm concerned. Make sure everything, all the X, the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. Work out the details. So when Jesus tells us through Paul here to work out our salvation, he's saying the deal is done. Salvation is yours. Work out the details. And what are the details to working out your salvation? Well, the details of working out your salvation are understanding how God wants you to live this life. He wants you to know what your gifts are and how to contribute in the body of Christ. He wants you to know how to steward your life and how to turn away from sin and turn on to healthy, godly things that draw attention to Jesus. Those are the details. And he says, work out the details to your relationship with Christ and get busy doing it. See, there was not an expectation you got your fire insurance policy now and you walk off into the sunset. Quite the opposite. Here's your deal. You got the deal. Now work out the details. Make sure you execute on all the stuff that God, why he made the deal. He redeemed us. He, he put us, he took us from death and put us into life. He said, work out the details. Get busy. And he says this great expression, fear and trembling. Now, and unfortunately, we want to kind of sanitize this so that it doesn't sound too hell, fire, and brimstone. Well, you know what? We're not talking about hell, fire, and brimstone. We're talking about reverence. To fear and tremble before a living God is the presence of knowing how powerful God is and how little we are apart from the grace of God. Fear and trembling is an active state. It's not a mental ascent. You know, so when you say, do you fear God? Oh, you bet I fear God. You move on. No, to fear God, fear and tremble, according to this passage, means to consider God's pleasure with every decision you make, every action you take. 
He says to live with fear and trembling means to live with an active reverence that it matters to God. It matters to God how you go home and go into your home tonight. It matters how, to God how you go into your office and whom you love and who you, who you encourage. It matters to God that you pony up and you, you shoulder that part of the body of Christ that is your responsibility that we might all grow. Those are the things. That's what it means for fear and trembling. It is an act of reverence that it matters to God. That's why I like this passage. This is one stinking loaded verse. Well, here's regarding salvation, I go, okay, I, I always tell you to look at the passage first. What does the passage tell us? And then I go, what do other passages tell us about the same thing? And here's a couple of real quick ones for you. Ephesians 2 uh, 8 through 10. There's a lot of good verses on salvation, as you could guess. But let me show you some of the nuances that other passages bring up when we talk about this salvation. Because I say, is salvation different than eternal life? Maybe I should let you guys wrestle with that question. Or salvation, is eternal life a part of salvation? What does it mean to be saved? Let me help you here. To be saved is to be saved from Death and penalty for our sin, and it means to be saved to a life eternal. So when we use that little casual word, saved, which is the root word there in salvation, it's from soteriology, it means to be saved from, saved to. It could also mean to be preserved in a fight, preserved for a future. So anytime you read the word saved, you need to know what it's talking about in the Scriptures. Because it's not always talking about eternal life. But it's always talking about your relationship to God. Sometimes it's just talking about what you're saved from, the penalty of death. But sometimes it says, you know, you're saved for the purposes of heaven. That's why these are great. Become a student of this incredible gift that God's given us, His written word. So that you speak with articulation. When you, when you understand the things of eternity. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is one of the classic passages. Bobby, don't look at your watch. It's my, you can fire me. It's my last time today. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. I know, now I know how tired this is. Wait a second. I've got a few more things to say. <laughs> Just stay there. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 is the classic passage where it says you are saved, what? By grace through faith. It is the gift of God. And that no one can boast. It's this great picture where God saves us because of his kindness. It has nothing to do with us. He says, that's why you're saved. You're saved by grace. And then verse 10, it tells you the purpose. Don't ever stop at verse 9. You always go to verse 10 because it says why you were saved. That he's prepared these good works that we're supposed to be. We're supposed to do something with our salvation. So we know that salvation is always by God's grace. It's always a gift. And any smart person who receives a gift reacts with appreciation. How about Romans 10, 9 and 10? It says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's that, that passage. If you confess with your mouth, uh, Him is Lord, and you believe in your heart. That those two verses in Romans 10, part of that Romans road deal, basically tells us that there is a, there's a personal response involved in the salvation experience. It's just another nuance to the, the beauty and the com- complexity of salvation. 
And Romans 8.38 basically says that nothing can separate us. It's a, it is an eternal security passage, which means that you can never lose this gift that God has given you. And you go, well, Scott, are you contradicting yourself? You no, know, not a bit. The Scriptures are very clear that we will not lose that which God has given us, which is eternal life, which is the forgiveness of sins. But there are very clear indications that there's something in the mix. That as you study all these passages on Scripture, there is something that if you just blow off your salvation, you just take your fire insurance and you wander into your own life, that there are consequences to that. A couple of quick ones up there. So what happens if I don't? Well, Matthew 24, 13 has, is a great passage because it says, if you endure, you will be saved. What is he talking about? If you endure, you'll be saved. I'll let you wrestle with that one in your group if you care to. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27 says, don't be disqualified. After you're saved and you do all these things and you blow them off and you choose to go live your life, Paul says you can get disqualified. What is he talking about? What are you going to be disqualified from? Well, it's clear from Scripture what you're going to be disqualified from. And 1 Corinthians 3 also says the same thing. What you'll be disqualified from is the joy of serving at the king's pleasure. If you decide just to throw away your life and live it for yourself, you're going to miss out on the great pleasures of serving the king. Both on this side of heaven, and then when you stand before him one day in judgment, and he says, what did you do with that which I gave you? And if you wasted it away, then you get the great privilege of saying, I did nothing with it. That's not an experience, men, we want you to have. It's not an experience I want to have. And as your friend and brother in Christ, I say we don't, this, that we don't go there. That's not what we want to hear. But the Scriptures are very clear to us that we can waste away the joy of serving at Christ's pleasure. And we don't want to go there. That 1 Corinthians 3 is the passage that began to change my life about all of this. This is the passage that says that you can, after you get... Your relationship with Christ, you can either choose to build it with things that don't count or things that really count. And then when you stand before Christ, those who built things on, who just wasted their life will still get to go to heaven. The passage is clear. They still go to heaven. But it describes it as though the hems of their gown are singed. And that's a picture. That's a picture I don't want. A picture I don't want you to have. Well... I want to close with this idea of what you do with your salvation counts uh, to work out your fear, uh, your salvation with fear and trembling. In Hebrews 6, 9 through 12, put it up there. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and the things that accompany salvation. Though we are speaking in this way, for God is not unjust as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. Men, he knows your sacrifices. He knows when you've turned away from sin. He knows when you've carried the banner. And nobody else is patting you on the back or saying, way to be a good husband, way to be a good guy, way to turn that channel, way to stay away from that sin. But he does. Have shown toward his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the promises. 
We don't know who the author of the, Hebrew, of the letter of the Hebrews is, but it is, it is one powerful letter. And again and again, it, it encourages guys like you and me not to quit. Hebrews 3, 1 referred, has a great expression into it. It refers to us as partakers of a heavenly calling. And I close with this. My resource is a Greek teacher I had in seminary, a guy named Zane Hodges. And he loved this passage. And, and I still remember him talking about this passage, and he's saying these are some of the great words that we miss in the English language because there is a, an idiom, a uh, Greek idiom, that comes from this word partakers of a calling. And that's what Paul, whoever wrote this is referring to us saying, you're partakers of a heavenly calling. And uh, Prof. Hodges said this is only found in Greek literature talking about war. And these partakers are fellow warriors. And the way he described this is he said, it is those warriors like we who are in this room, we fight the enemy and we succeed in pushing them off our land and we get to the river and the enemy runs to the other side of the river. And then the captain of the army turns to his men and he goes, men, you have done faithfully what you've been called to do. But I'm going over the river and I'm finishing the job. You are not obligated to go with me, but you're welcome to. And those who chose to go with the captain across the river, they engage the enemy on the other side of it, and the battle ensues, and the battle is won. And then the captain captain goes back together with those men who chose to go across the river. They put their swords together, and they go, fellow partakers. This is a picture of what God gives us. In this battle, this thing that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that we are called with a heavenly calling to be fellow partakers, to finish the job, to run the entire race, and then to stand together before Christ to hear those great words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I'm sorry I went over. Father, thanks for this time and these men. I pray that this is a great, great day for all of us as we continue to take the hill. For Christ's sake, amen.